Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in sports cars, all listener-driven, coming in via Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, MySpace, Friendster, and a variety of applications. I am Marshall Pruitt. I cover sports car racing here in the United States. On the backside, uh, apparently falling, crashing, or something, that is our man Graham Goodwin. He editor of dailysportscar.com a man who covers the FIA World Endurance Championship European Le Mans Series Asian Le Mans Series throw in something with sports cars put series at the end he likely covers it how are you my man and tell folks about your day of electronic struggles Oh, yeah, it has been a bit of a struggle. So uh, uh, I'm great. Uh, Another glorious day here, breaking all sorts of records in the spring in the UK for sunshine at the moment. But uh, yes, for the second consecutive week after faultless electronics for the entire week, the second you dial in, things have gone awry. So at the moment, sitting not down in GGHQ at the end of the garden, but actually in the living room uh, of our home with uh, one laptop talking to you on Skype and the other laptop uh, with a stunning list of questions once again. So hopefully nothing falls over again. And we'll apologize for the slightly echoey Graham this week. That's just because, again, he's having to work a bit of digital magic to make this possible. As our official selecta, Graham, for the weekend Sports Cars, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, where should we start first? Well, with the eagle flying overhead, in fact, the dragon overhead at the moment, God bless it. Um, let's go to him, sir. Ooh, hey, well, that means you lob questions at my big, round, easy-to-hit face. <laughs> well, let's kick it off with Matt Byrne. Hi, Matt. Uh, do you have a sense, MP, of how some of the iconic U.S. tracks are doing financially, how they might be poised or not uh, to weather this pandemic without spectators? What tracks do you see as the most vulnerable if there are no butts with two T's uh, in seats this season? This comes on the back of actually your wise words last week, MP, about the potential for IMSA's calendars to look a little different in the future, maybe. Can't say that I have any one track that jumps out as being in worrisome, more worrisome condition than others at least from the intel that I've received and the phone calls and or texts or emails that have come in would say it's more a case of shared trauma than anyone to my knowledge being at a tipping point of calamity. Yeah. Can share a local example here of one where they don't appear to be doing themselves a lot of favors so one story that I'm chasing regarding my home circuit, Laguna Seca, involves what is, I believe, its second largest event of the year. I believe their major motorcycle event every year is indeed the number one generator of fans and income and everything else. That is not happening this year, to my knowledge. So that leaves the second event, Graham, one that is a deeply passionate attendance for me the Rolex Monterey Motorsports reunion in August. They have been adamant in saying it's going forward, have learned that Rolex 
has indeed pulled its sponsorship from the event, and I've heard from basically every other major event during this pandemic. More or less a, hey, this year is just bad for everyone. Not even talking business, just do we really want to be out promoting us while so many folks are are grieving and or dealing with hard times? Let's be smart. We're just going to pull back for for the remainder of the year. Well, that takes the title sponsor off of that event, have also heard the selection committee led by some very uh, highly reputed and experienced folks, Bruce Canepa being one of them. Uh, I'm still chasing whether they quit or were fired. Um, But we have a situation where the second largest event is appearing to be on its knees, if not about to go into the ground for the year, unfortunately. Uh, some of it, again, sponsor decision, other maybe self-harm by the circuit. That's not too uncommon from what I've heard at a number of other tracks. Uh, is, is this with the new management team in place, MP? Yes. This is okay. a situation where I've heard about you know Portland being granted. It's not a place where I believe any major sports car series goes right now, but... Uh, we did have World Challenge there last year, I believe. Uh, they are not in the happiest of places. The governor of that state has not been keen on sporting events happening again. So just to hear this collectively in most segments of, boy, we're not in great shape, but we can hopefully survive if we can start getting back to racing soon. So one specific track? No, I haven't heard that. But I've just heard many are worried that if we don't get back to normalcy and fans able to come in and or series paying a sanction fee to be there instead of expecting a sanction fee to appear, these are a couple of the things that need that will need to happen. I guess the, the quick close to this is ask this question in a month, ask this question in two months, and it could be very, very different. Yes, indeed. Worrying times for everybody, a whole range of fronts, really, isn't it? And it's an extension of that question comes from Janine Renee, and that's not a name I recognise from Weekend Sportscasting. You're more than welcome joining the happy band here, Janine. Is there any indication that fans will be allowed at any of the IMSA races this year, MP? Another one that is hard to answer today. Do I expect the Daytona event? The resumption of the season here on July 4, do I expect that to be a spectator thing? I do not. There's also a month between now and that event, so we will have to see if and what permissions are allowed, uh, new permissions are granted and such. I just would have to say this is going to be a constant topic of checking in, and you have IMSA, and I would imagine Graham, WC, LMS, etc., basing their decisions on fans or no fans on very simple governmental allowances, whether it's on a state level, countrywide level, you name it. This is a situation where these series are just acting upon what they're told they can do. The first trigger, the obvious one, hey, you can go back to racing in our state, country, or wherever, 
The second has been, well, can we have fans? One example, timing turned out to not be favorable, Graham, is next Saturday, June 6th, will be the season opener for the NTT IndyCar Series at Texas Motor Speedway. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, I think more than a month ago, said, hey, we're going to allow major sports to happen again here. No fans. Okay, great. NASCAR comes back. Uh, You have IndyCar that is going to run there. What we learned a couple of days ago, Graham, was Governor Abbott said, okay, as part of our gradual return to normalcy, we will allow 25% maximum capacity at these major open-air sporting events. Nothing inside. No fans are allowed in any kind of domed anything. But if it's an outdoor event, which Texas Motor Speedway happens to be, we will allow 25% of whatever the maximum capacity might be. Well, with whatever the number is, 10 days, 8 days, 9 days, between that new announcement and the race itself, speaking with the circuit on Friday, they said, yeah, we'd love to, but there just truly isn't time to install the ticket sales and security and food. I mean, we're, this is a lot of stuff to ramp up in a very short amount of time. So we are just going to stick with our plan of no fans. We would hope that with more than a month until Daytona, who knows if Florida says, yep, you can have them. Everything's great. Then maybe that would be something for them to consider. But I also believe they are probably just going to go with no fans For the sake of simplicity, let's just keep it as small as we can, as easy to manage as we can, and get through the first race. If and what they decide to do is they move on to the rest of their tracks, given the time, given the permissions on whatever statewide levels that might change, akin to what we had happen in Texas, uh, and a 25% number, who knows what that could be elsewhere, I think we're going to see more fans or fans start to be allowed in. I can tell you one thing for sure. A blanket, no fans at all races for the rest of the year uh, would probably have a number of circuits that are on the calendar a month and a half to three months from now, Graham, uh, Mm -hmm. considering canceling altogether. Because if (laughs) if they're going to have to spend money to put on a race, and know that they cannot recoup any of that through fan attendance. Again, a couple months down the line when we hope the virus is not as big of a threat as it is, you might have some tracks that say, nah, sorry, we can't do this if you hold us to a zero-fan policy everywhere. Yeah, I should say, by the way, we have had one bit of good news, of course, in the last few days, which is some good work, by the way, from the IMSA senior management team. Um, with the international exemption list being extended to professional motorsports MP. Yeah, they deserve a giant thumbs up, a a true uh, high five victory lap, you name it. Uh, This is something where both IMSA and NASCAR, it wasn't just just IMSA, but uh, a lot of IMSA leadership involved here to make international travel for athletes possible into the u.s and no disrespect to any other racing series here in the states i was a bit surprised by this graham 
I really thought this would have been a coalition. I'm thinking this would have been NASCAR and IMSA, obviously. IndyCar, uh, I know that there's not much in the way of international engagement in the NHRA National Hot Rod Association, but nonetheless, I would have thought, name all the major off-road, motorcycle, just all the major figureheads come together in a room with the Department of Homeland Security, which governs such allowances, to make this happen. And indeed, it was not. It was the folks in the office right across the street from Daytona International Speedway making it happen. So that, I got to admit, man, uh, I felt very proud of all the folks there that did that. I also felt uh, maybe a little bit curious about why some of the other bigger series, uh, at least bigger than IMSA, were not right there taking a leadership role. So nonetheless... Good on IMSA. And think about this. Think about what the new management has done there, primarily being John Doonan. But think about all that's taken place since that guy went to work, uh, what, January 1st, more or less, uh, with making convergence happen. I know you and I aren't exactly sure it's going to end up being all that it could. But nonetheless, this thing that was just seemingly dying on the vine over and over again, getting everyone back to the table, making that happen, being very proactive when the coronavirus hit to prevent Sebring, uh, our oldest endurance race in the country, from collapsing and making sure instead of it being a cancellation, uh, having that being a postponement that's now the season finale, uh, you think about the doubling up of circuits, adding an extra round at Daytona and Sebring, then being a, a key part of the leadership team that has gotten this permission for international drivers and key personnel to travel inbound. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, without saying, <laughs> without overstating the obvious, Graham, uh, there have been some leaders of sports car series who have not gotten this much done in six years. Uh, compared to what's been done here in six months. so Just one, one bit to add to this, by the way, and it's a part of an interview yet to be published, but I'll share this with you because it direct relates to this. It was a conversation with Stefan Mattel a week or two ago, and I did ask the question, how is it going during this pandemic crisis about collaboration between the major operators in the endurance racing field? You know, is there an opportunity to double up with race meters, etc.? And the answer there was principally focused around calendars. It's quite interesting. Uh, he had very good things to say about the level of uh, conversation that's going on in North America between SRO North America and IMSA. He had very good things to say about collaboration and trying to make sure that uh, major races don't clash with WEC, for instance, with the LMS. Um, likewise, some, some, uh, some quality kind of interaction with things like the FFSA in France, with ADAC in Germany. But he did save one little bit of criticism um, for one organization. He said it had been singly unhelp- unhelpful. Can you guess who that is? Hmm. Uh, it's not the FIA. I'm going to get to, it's DTM. What? <laughs> have been singly unhelpful um, and you know, continue to be so. And um, I think there's a degree, I don't know what the French is for Schadenfreude, but um, for their current state of uh, state of woes, 
So make it really clear that DTM have been. Uh, see, and now, you, now the DTM's calling you. You should not have been talking <laughs> smack, my uh, man. Look what I happened. Think, uh, excellent stuff. Right, so let's uh, finish off with him. So with a uh, with one hit from Claire McCann. Uh, Watkins Glen in October, says Claire in questioning tone. Do Michelin have a snow tire for him, sir? Seriously, my husband and I were at Daytona in 2017, but it was 38 degrees. The PC cars kept falling off the track five times on that because they couldn't get enough heat into the tyres. Is it going to be a problem for any of the categories if it gets that cold at the Glen? Well, there is one major change since 2017, isn't there? Well, yes. Uh, The tyres used by IMSA teams have less granite uh, in the <laughs> compound, so that should be a help. Uh, yeah, I, again, I know this is a, a concern that has certainly been well founded. Would just say or suggest or offer in normal times, uh, we definitely would be concerned about whether running at some of the East Coast, upstate-type tracks later in the year due to winter starting to land, at least as we have seen global warming change normal things and it snow at times when it should be sunny and rain when there's normally a drought, I would just hold any real convictions as to what we might see. I don't know. In a normal world, in the, it feels like the world that I thought was normal kind of no longer exists so often. There'd be a reason to be concerned. Uh, I'm not so much. For all we know, it's going to snow at Sebring in November or whenever the hell that race is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just look, if, if frogs aren't falling from the sky, I'll be very surprised. So, yeah, it's definitely a thing, but I won't invest any belief in anything truly happening too much more because, yeah, the world just seems a little bit out of sorts. So, yeah. Uh, what was the what was the tweet that I saw today from someone about uh, the two astronauts who uh, left? Earth? It's a good time to leave the Earth. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, great timing. And, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I I would I would say that having seen Michelin shod rain tire shod granted, but Michelin shod Porsche nine eleven RSRs win overall at Petit Le Mans, uh, kicking the behind of the prototypes on those granite like Continentals, uh, would say that I do have great faith in Michelin. And whatever we need tire-wise, yeah, not too much of a concern. But the other question is, to the windshield wipers on the cars, are they strong enough to move snow uh, while actively racing? Water, we know, uh, but snow, I'm not totally sure. Or frogs, not totally sure, but I look forward to finding out. Uh, That's that's just done with insert for the time being, mate. It is. Okay, well, then I'm going to hit the little marker here so we know where the little timestamp starts. That means it is indeed time for Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aco, all the things that happen to be Graham, Goodwins, 
area of expertise. And thank you again, by the way, to Jacob Bain for updating the Twictionary, the pretty awesome <laughs> Google Doc spreadsheet of all the things that I mispronunciate, mostly not on purpose, but occasionally on purpose. The much smaller degree of items that you, Graham, get wrong. And I'm currently trying to stop our cat Rocky from walking behind my monitor and computer for the first time because he seems bored. Now he's staring at the miniaturized Cosworth DFV model I have right in front of the monitor, which he's eyeing as if he might bite it. And I hope he doesn't. So, yes, this is the uh, exciting type stuff that goes on while recording the weekend sports cars. Usually during the weekend IndyCar, Rocky jumps up and tries to put his butt in my face. So we have been spared that so far today, my friend. Our very first question, courtesy of a longtime friend of the show. Hey, and this rhymes, Stathis Coco. He says, Graham, we haven't heard from Janetta lately. Are we going to see the next year with grandfathered P1 cars to help increase the numbers for the good old wackety whack? He says, will they get a place as an LMP2 constructor, maybe, to get into IMSA's LMDH formula? Also, anything new regarding Baikalis and their hypercar? We know they tested last week for Spa and Le Mans. Okay, let's deal with Baikalis first. This has been an up, down, inside out. Um, what will happen with hypercar? <laughs> it's almost a drinking game, isn't it? Isn't it just, you know, isn't it just um, flaming Sambucas in the case of uh, Bicolas normally? <laughs> but um, the, uh, the answer is they're progressing with the design. Just exactly where are they going to be and when, I think, is an open question. It would seem that the uh, will-they-won't-they they, um, story of the Aston Martin Valkyrie threw them a bit of a curveball, initially having to uh, remove the plans to use the Gibson uh, engine in their hypercar and then reinstating that that was all to do with the power output that would have been required and that the gibson could reliably provide but back to the gibson uh, the car at le mans this year is meant to be the return of their lmp1 car as a kind of bit of a proving run <sighs> let's wait and see hashtag wait and see for the first time this episode for the bicolors as for Ginetta, that's an altogether more complex uh, set of questions uh, first things first, will they be allowed to be an LMP2 uh, chassis supply? I'm told at the moment the answer is a firm no. I think that's a mistake. Um, that's certainly not going to endear them to one Mr. Lawrence Tomlinson. He's put an awful lot of his own investment into this LMP1 program with the hope that he could begin to recoup some of that investment with an LMP2 program, uh, which he feels uh, Janetta should be getting. I happen to agree with him on that front. Um, will they do a hypercar? The answer is, well, we absolutely know that Ginetta have been in contact with more than one manufacturer. I've known that for many, many months, and for what it's worth, I know at least one of the manufacturers that they've been in contact with, and no, I'm not going to tell you, but it's a big one. Um, PTO. <laughs> I sincerely hope, it's not Saturn either, um, that, uh, that that is not going to be uh, a bit of a dead end for them. Will they be back next year? I think that's going to come down to just what the quality of conversation currently is between WC, the ACO, and Ginetta. Um, 
I've not caught up with Lawrence for a couple of weeks. Uh, my guess at the moment is that that's a slightly shaky uh, relationship. Uh, he certainly is not happy in any way, shape or form with the decision about LMP2. Uh, will he want to put any more of his own money into this? I think the answer is probably not. Uh, so it does come down to whether or not anybody can be convinced that there is a winning opportunity for a Ginetta, a grandfather Ginetta LMP1 uh, when you've got uh, the Toyota, potentially Jim Glickenhouse's car, and potentially um, the Baikonas, which you have to believe would be given some kind of performance advantage because there is nothing in it for the ACO to allow their brand new hypercars to be beat by anything else. There's a lot of pieces still on the table here uh, to be played. Uh, but do I expect a return of the factory cars? I don't. Do I believe there might be interest from elsewhere? That's going to depend on a whole lot of other things coming together. Um, there is, how can I put this, a profound lack of clarity in what we might see on that front, on all fronts, for Ginetta uh, and Bicolas. Let's... Uh, Let's see how things actually kind of uh, emerge from that gloom. That's even before we start getting into what impact has the current crisis had on the financials of all concerned, including those that might have been uh, interested or involved in discussions to run the cars next year. There we go. Man, we just got smarter and stuff. We're going to go to <laughs> Brandon Bird, whose name hey. is also not one that is sticking into immediate memory. So thanks for firing this in, Brandon. It says, really enjoyed the GT1 articles on DailySportsCar.com. Thank you for those. Do either of you know the history of why Toyota and Nissan didn't run their cars in the FIA World Championships? Seems like a waste to spend that kind of money to only run one time a year when a championship was available. It's a great question. Thank you for the thanks. I thoroughly enjoyed doing our GT1 week. Um, Two things to say about this one. One is it was not an FI World Championship at the time. It was the FI GT Championship. And I think the reality there is the costs against uh, the returns were probably pretty high. This was the period, of course, when um, Porsche and then Mercedes-Benz were steamrolling opposition. That championship, by the way, 1998, was, you're quite correct, still available, but it had gone by 1999. So there was only really one year available for them to do that. I think that would have been return on investment-led. I can tell you, by the way, I'm literally today refreshing a couple of uh, stories that we've run in years past on Daily Sports Club that tell some really in-depth stuff about both those programs, the Tom Walkinshaw Racing Run um, Nissan uh, R390 program and the Toyota Team Europe, as it was, uh, Toyota GT1 program, including a fantastic piece, which I'd totally forgotten that we got in our archive, which talked about the, the way in which the Toyota GT1's aerodynamic package actually worked. Fascinating stuff and some, some real, a real glimpse into what, what might have been of that program. So the answer is return on investment, I think, would have been the main part of that one. You're absolutely right that um, the cars only ever ran at Le Mans, with one exception, and that was 1999 when one of the Toyotas ran, I think it was the Fuji 500 kilometers, was beaten, actually, by the replacement for the GT1 car, the Nissan LMP900. Uh, so, sadly, uh, neither of those cars had a particularly illustrious career 
Uh, but you're absolutely right. It was one fabulous, if completely unsustainable era um, of international motorsport. We are going to go to a few more, and then we have a bunch of Hegenerale general questions. Excellent. So just going to try and pick and choose through some of what we have here. <laughs> Let's go to our pal Smoking Puppy for 841. What would be your ideal race week format for Le Mans? Says, Ooh. hashtag me personally. I've really enjoyed the format used up until 2019 with four hours of practice, six hours of qualifying, though I'd be up for uh, it to become 10 hours of qualifying. Well, okay, there's a completely different answer here between if you're a fan or if you're working this race. I can tell you, I'm sure it must, I'd be interested in your view on this one from the perspective of the Indianapolis 500 MP. Le Mans week is absolutely grueling. To give you an idea what that looks like, um, we rock up into Le Mans on the Saturday before race weekend. We're there all day Sunday for the uh, scrutineering, all day Monday for scrutineering. Tuesday is supposed to be a down day, but it's basically catching up with scrutineering news and things from the paddock. Wednesday, you're there all day, again, gathering news and interviews before we finally get onto track on Wednesday evening. Same on Thursday, Friday, supposedly a down day. It's when everybody has their press conferences. It is a madhouse on Friday. And, of course, that always sets you up with a lovely, relaxing day uh, to come into race day, where to beat the traffic and to beat the crowds, you've got to be in super early, usually about 8 a.m. in the morning with the press room open, um, which means you are completely exhausted by the time you're done. I don't think there's a day leading into the race where we are abed before about 1 or 2 a.m. Um, and by the time you're done with Le Mans week, you are completely and utterly exhausted. And this year, um, if things go the way they're supposed to be, we'll have the, the Nürburgring 24 hours the following weekend. So what's my ideal format? Less than that, uh, is the honest answer. Um, it's always struck me as being odd that we don't have track action earlier on the Wednesday or the Thursday. That's always obviously because the uh, public roads, High Rocky, uh, have, uh, have got to be closed. And ideal format would be to give a little bit more spread to that track time. Um, in some ways, having it closeted into um, that, that pretty tightly defined uh, space is a good thing. It means you've got more time away from the press room um, with, without cars on track or if you're trackside and shooting, uh, trackside. But for me, it's a very, very long week. And I personally would like that week to be perhaps a little shorter or with a bit more of a defined break between the formalities and track action. But, you know, the reality is that that Friday very often is when teams that otherwise wouldn't make it to the grid uh, play the recovery card. And how many times, MP, have we seen teams rebuilding cars or completely replacing cars on a Friday before we get into race day? Um, I'm keen to see how this new format works in reality. Uh, am I a fan of the, the hyperpole idea? Not really. But then again, I'm a bit of a hard-nosed cynic. Uh, I'm perfectly prepared to give this one, um, you know, a chance to, to show us some entertainment we haven't previously seen. But focusing too much attention on 
qualifying for a 24-hour race has never been something I've seen as being particularly good use of the available time and resource, and particularly if we get to the stage where people hit trouble and then spend the rest of their weeks scrambling to catch up. But um, some qualifying formats have worked well. The Nürburgring, for instance, have done well with some of the formats they've used for 24 hours there. Let's give Le Mans a shot at uh, finding a way to entertain us uh, on Wednesday and Thursday evening. So... There's a bit of a missed timeline here in hashtag me personally opinion. We have one hybrid LMP1 car left, the Toyota model, the TSO 50 happy, but this would have been a great thing. If we're talking about crazy qualifying process, let's see the most lethal prototypes plural on the planet just balls out attack mode crazy let's set new all-time records would have been great to do back when it even when it was just a audi versus peugeot time and we could go back further and further but i'm just thinking about the just baffling speed offered by toyota's audis and porsche's Something that uh, I'm not sure we're going to see those speeds ever achieved in our lifetime again, Graham. I just wish this kind of, well, if we're going to have qualifying, let's truly set a format when we have cars that can do things that, again, are so darn unique. And what do we have now? Again, I'm not saying the privateer P1 cars aren't great and fast and all that, but Boy, just seems like we're picking a weird time to try and do uh, fun, fast, and interesting things. So I'm, I am always of the mindset that if you're going to have a session to determine the fastest speed to then set the grid order, why implement things where all drivers, and I'm just talking general, not necessarily the what's coming here at Le Mans in a couple of months, but... Uh, or what was before, but any kind of we're going to average the laps and we're going to have all the look, if you're setting the grid based on outright speed and capability, then structure it as such. That's that's, it just seems like why you would have qualifying. Putting in measures where indeed you might be limiting uh, outright speed, don't fully get it. So uh, yeah, I, I like where things are headed, just maybe a little bit wishing that we'd done them years ago. Um, I'm going to grab, uh, let's see, Doogie Davies, you sent in a bunch of questions. I'm going to pick mm-hmm. one. Uh, I might be able to answer it a little bit. Doogie says, would it be wrong to assume that Audi pulling out of the DTM, Graham, could be an mm-hmm. indicator that they are reallocating funds to an LMDH program? Uh, The answer is you're wrong to assume specifically that. Uh, There is a wider edict from the Volkswagen Audi group that they are withdrawing from uh, motorsports that is effectively uh, powered by internal combustion engines. Does that count out LMDH? It most certainly does not. Number one is there is, of course, a degree of electrification. Number two is there is potential for a customer program uh, in those kind of instances. So 
any of those companies. And, and here's where, you know what, there's even potential for this to be a plus right now for companies that can survive the melee out there, that if you can put together something that is predicated on customer car sales and support, you transfer a cost center for uh, motorsport into something that could be a profit center. And I'm sure that that's what every customer racing department around the world of uh, the automotive uh, industry right now is looking to do. Um, specifically, as far as Audi's concerned, they've got a fine history under Chris Renke uh, with their customer sport department of launching a new car every single year. They're going to miss that this year for sure, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but um, there's no doubt in my mind that Chris will be looking very hard indeed at what might be a future opportunity for his customer racing department, uh, which, of course, has got GT2, GT3, GT4, TCR, uh, to add another string to their bow. And I wouldn't be remotely surprised if there's a proposal on the table from, from Audi, as well as very many other um, customer support departments to see whether or not that might be possible. Uh, should apologise, by the way, if you do hear a bit of a clickety-clack uh, in the background here, that's because Oscar the Husky has just arrived home from his walk. Oscar. Well, I've currently got Rosie trying to bite pens and attack the cable attached to my phone that allows us to communicate. So this is just the uh, the all-animal episode of the Week in Sports Cars. <laughs> Uh, where shall we go next, my man? Who selects? Well, we've had WC LMS. Uh, should we go for general? Are we going to finish with general this weekend? This week? What do you think? We're going to go for a little bit of fun. Let's start with fun, fun. yeah, because there's let's not a that. ton there. But why don't we? Yeah, I like that. And okay, apparently, you're getting dinged yet again. The huge, really. Listeners. I'm telling you, DTM folks That's, are uh, mad at you. I can tell you. I can tell you for the the listeners' delight and delectation. That is my brother. Um, who is clearing out his, ha- his home before a house move, uh, he hopes, in the coming days. And he's found a VHS cassette, uh, possibly the last remaining uh, evidence of my appearance on a nationally televised game show, which he's trying to torture me with. Um, and if he does actually find a way to digitise that, I'm going to hunt him down and slay him, because it is uncompromisingly awful. Uh, but that's for another day. Uh, fun. This is from Josh Barrett. Josh, hello. Um, Marshall, what's the one European sports car event you haven't covered that you'd like to? And for me, the one American sports car event I've not covered that I'd like to? MP. Well, the main one would be Nürburgring. Of course, and you'd be correct. As I have shared before on the show, I have had... I think the last count was six invitations to travel and cover. And I mean fully paid for travel. This these are would be manufacturer invitations. And I've had to turn down every single one. Clashes? Clashes, yeah. Just uh too many again, too many things happening that made accepting those invites possible. And the runner-up would be the good old Spa Franck Archant, uh, knowing that I have received, I think, two to three invitations to cover something there. 
and have uh, been unable to accept as well. So, yeah, uh, those are the easy ones there. I Since I don't know what you have or have not covered here uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S., maybe I'll just assume none. Uh, for me, I mean, the one that's, so there's two things I would say. Uh, one is, it's not a sports car event. I've never been to the Indy 500. Um, so that's number one. I'd love to go uh, and watch whether or not I'd like to cover it, different matter. Um, as far as the standing events that I've not done, I have done all, all the major Blue Ribbon events and uh, all bar uh, Watkins Glen multiple, multiple times for those. I've uh, covered uh, LMS at Laguna Seca, awesome. Um, there's a couple of bits and bobs. The Rensport Reunion, I'd love to do that. Monterey Historics, I'd love to do that. Um, and as we've discussed multiple times, the one uh, track that's on my bucket list in the United States that I've not seen a major race weekend at is Road America. So I'd love to go and come down and uh, join you at that track at some point in the relatively near future. But there, the kind of the events and the locations that uh, are on that actually now remarkably small bucket list um you know i've been lucky enough to to cover particular on multiple times sebring multiple times daytona multiple times and you know i'm more to the point i'm more than happy to be coming back to some of those events in the near future uh, but no road america and a couple of the fine fine historic race events that you've got across in the united states of what you term america uh, that I'd love to join you with. I would say, Josh, I would say Sebring. The 12 Hours of Sebring is the most American sports car event, period. It is incredible. It is over the top. It makes you question the state's educational system. Um, it makes you ponder uh, the need for law enforcement, if not uh, mental health officials. Uh, you will be baffled by the things that are there. You will be maddened and just so frustrated by other things as well. Uh, you'll see amazing cars, incredible sounds, pageantry, all manner of things. It might rain. You might get heat stroke. You both could happen in the same day. Uh, you might see things launching from Cape Canaveral or otherwise. It is everything that is who we are wrapped up in a single event. All the positives, all the negatives, plus sports car racing. Yeah. You will, again, you'll always find some quirky negatives at every event but this is us cranked up to 11 it is everything we are and it's an unapologetic event as well so lots of people lots of crazies big celebration when you're going to need to quarantine on the way out Okay, coming in will be easy. You're going to need to do a 14-day self-quarantine, get a lot of shots, a lot of penicillin. Uh, It's just, yeah, that would be my suggestion. Uh, It's going to wear you out physically and mentally. That's a good race, if you ask me. Yeah, I think I'm right. The first three years I came to the Seabring 12 Hours, someone died every year 
in the crowd, and on each of those three occasions, it was someone intoxicated falling off the back of a pickup truck. Oh, Lord. Believe that to be true. There you go. Uh, what's next, mate? Let, uh, you're just dinging away on us here. Uh, uh, it's, it's still brother, still torturing me. I, um, <laughs> at least we get to hear it. And we're not going to edit this stuff out. We're just going to keep the... Uh, we're going to keep the realty, the realness here, the realty. There we go. We're selling houses, and we're keeping it real. Uh, Jonathan Wu, considering the recent Daniel App shenanigans, Ooh. has anyone tried or thought about pulling that off in real life? Hashtag me personally if anyone attempted this. Middle of the night uh, during a 24-hour race may be the best place to start. Um, I've heard all sorts of tales of daring do from the past about this one. Never one that's been proven by the UMP, but uh, there's all sorts of uh, shenanigans that are rumoured to have taken place, particularly in things like the Le Mans 24 Hours back in the day, uh, with suspiciously uh, excellent lap times coming from suspiciously not very excellent gentleman drivers. But um, there's a couple of tales of you know, borrowing somebody else's helmet, for instance, um, but nothing that can be proved. We've not actually tackled the kind of Daniel Lapp thing, have we? And I think uh, I'd just offer this. We have a question a fact, about it in general, so uh, we, we, we can well, dive we'll in there. We'll come back to that one. Um, no, I think is the answer. Not one that I can actually pin uh, the tail on the donkey for. Here's something I'm curious about and I should ask to get an, a proper answer from. I'm thinking most modern, the most modern of scenarios when, let's see, if we're talking about a 24-hour race and we have drive time limits, you know, even in the pro categories, right? You Mm -hmm. can only do X amount of hours within X amount of time and you can do total amount of X. The thing that tells a racing series who is in the car is their helmet, and not actually the livery, but the connection. When the driver yeah. plugs in their helmet, uh, there's a secondary aspect to this as well, electronic communication, an ID tag that says, aha, when you plug in or when you unplug and driver gets out and new driver gets in, ding, uh, Ryan Briscoe just went in the car. Okay, great. Provided there are no in-car cameras, you know, uh broadcast cameras inside the car and provided there's nothing that could be used visually to really tell who was in the vehicle uh to be you know no snooping methods by the series provided the driver getting in is a the same general height and weight and look as the one getting out and or one who should be resting i'm curious if and what methods might be employed to figure out, and again, I just threw Briscoe's name in, I'm not saying them in particular, but wondering what would stop or how such a a cheat uh, would be caught or monitored um, if there wasn't, you know, some form of video camera seeing it from in the car, uh, looking at the driver's face to go, hey, that, you know, the driver whose helmet, is there that person has blue eyes and this person has brown eyes or is there an external camera you know from the broadcaster pointing in to see that oh the size doesn't really match who is supposedly going in dressed up as a teammate or could it be one of the 
pit crews on either side if you know the sides of the their pit box is open to see through again i mean there's a lot of things where in theory you might be able to catch this but i also do wonder like what methods are in place to truly see if like well our ringer or our best driver who we really need right now during the night uh, to claw back some time who by regulation should not be in the car well uh we've had them put on the helmet of someone else whose time we are going to maybe limit a little bit and anyways it'd be interesting to try and find out the answer to that I would suggest to you the two races, I'm not saying it's happened, the two races it would be easiest to do that in would be the two races with the most crowded pit lane, the most confused uh, entry. Something like WEC, the reality is there are pit lane officials that will be monitoring that. There's a lot of electronics, there's a lot of in-car, everything. Uh, but I would point the, uh, the audience in the direction of the Dubai 24 hours and the Nürburgring 24 hours. It's only fairly recently we've had driver indicators for the Nürburgring and with so many cars in each of the garages and so many drivers in each of those cars my guess is that is where you want to be looking for for what might be termed potential shenanigans got a lot of great questions here by the way and fun and we have a little bit over an hour today to record so as always do not hesitate to send these back in uh, if we don't get to them uh, I'll grab one or two others here from FUN Fun. This is aimed for you from our pal Jerry Siddeth. Graham, if you had to pick two paddock personalities for the Monty Python dead paddock sketch, who would you choose and why? <laughs> um, <laughs> right, so this is the, um, the deadpan shopkeeper. Yes? Yes. And the, uh, how could we put this, the irritated... Uh, customer, and I'm going to go for two Frenchmen. What? The shopkeeper would have to be the sheriff, Alain Tanier, who is the uh, the ACO WEC's uh, pit lane marshal, known as the sheriff, um, uh, absolutely uh, universally. I think he would be your uh, shopkeeper, and for the customer, there can be no other than Christophe Bouchon. There we go. We finally have a reason to play the jingle here. Uh, why? Well, he's our favorite fake sponsor. I'm actually giggling to myself just what that might be like. <laughs> I'd love it. All uh, right. Let, why don't we go with one more to close fun? Matt Anderson. Hey, Matt. He says, you've talked a lot about the good, the bad, and the ugly of racing movies. How about ranking the television episodes filmed around Ooh. actual racing that you either love or love to hate matt says a few that i can think of csi miami with the cart miami grand prix miami vice with imsa miami grand prix walker texas ranger with nascar macgyver with the canadian players gm racing series i'm curious if you know any of the others to add to the list that were filmed with an actual racing series and if so the plot lines and them also involve the main character conveniently bringing up the fact that they used to race cars professionally in another life. So Matt's uh, named all American I can give you a few. TV shows. How about some European ones? Well, there's, well, there's one other American one, which was Malcolm in the Middle did something, a NASCAR race. Huh. I think that's right. I think Malcolm in the Middle did something, a NASCAR race, which is very, very funny. Which is weird because the 
lead character Frankie Muniz was an open wheel guy getting as go. far as Formula Atlantic here. So, right, so, the, so the other two I can name you uh, were both UK series, although one of these two did have some episodes filmed in Canada, and that is The New Avengers. So The New Avengers, which, um, which is, if you've not watched it, it's awesome, absolutely awesome, um, and featured an episode where one of the protagonists was a race driver who was driving, I think, a Formula 5000 car and testing from memory at Silverstone. Um, and the uh, John Steed, played by Patrick McNee in that, uh, had this astonishing um, Jaguar XJC, a two-door version of the Jaguar XJ12. And the, the idea was here that... Um, this guy potted off into his Formula 5000 car and Steve chased him down and went alongside and waved him by. But, but the thing that always re- reminds me um, here of this one was in the background of the shot um, of one of the pit lane shots there was a, a now very elderly transit van with David Price Racing written on the side. Oh, wow. So Dave Price Racing was involved in that one. And I've now completely confused myself and forgotten what the other one was. Um, and it was, what was that one? Um, it, but neither of them were actually at uh, a real race, I think is the point here. So it's unusual to have got the, uh, the footage in a real race. Uh, there is, from memory, there is, though, a Hollywood film with somebody reading the newspaper with Nigel Mansell in the BTCC um, in the newspaper. It's something like uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Or it might be, it's certainly a, a Hugh Grant movie. I can't remember that one either. But no, can't remember one being shot um, actually at a major race meeting, I'm afraid. I'll remember the other one. It'll come back to me. Of the episodes listed, Matt, I mean, Miami Vice was always a bit of a cartoon, so the fact that Danny Sullivan could not act uh, playing what Danny Danny Tepper, I think, was his character's name, um, you know, that wasn't a huge surprise. It was enjoyable. I almost pooped myself when I was, because I was, you know, young American in my teens, and Miami Vice, of course, just was everything awesome. So I almost pooped my pants when what was watching whatever that live episode and saw that it was about my favorite racing series and IMSA GTP cars. So that was great. I didn't see the Walker, Texas Ranger with NASCAR one. That's a bit on the nose. Uh, the MacGyver with the Canadian players, GM team, that one I missed altogether. I got to go find that. Um, mm. I, w- I would probably say I've only watched it once and I have not attempted to go back and see it twice because I just fear I'd be shouting at the television and breaking it. And that was the CSI Miami uh, where they filmed that in and around uh, cart and or I think it was champ car at the time uh, at the Miami Grand Prix. I do uh, <laughs> I do recall taking a photo at the reconstituted Houston Grand Prix, maybe 2011, 2012, and can only assume that the same promoters were involved. <laughs> Because the cement K wall, the the you know the temporary the ones most commonly found, creating uh, or lining the temporary street circuits, one of those temporary K wall, I think those things weigh eight thousand pounds, Graham, had the Miami Grand had a Miami Grand Prix uh, promo 
banner kind of st- sort of still stuck to it and it, whatever it was it just it was clearly part of the production stuff applied to it for that csi miami episode so i just was i was a bit struck by walking along i think it was on pit lane and saw that and i'm like whoa well look at that they didn't scrub all evidence of that piece of garbage movie off of uh uh or i'm sorry uh tv show episode but yeah that one was just bad and granted csi miami is already among the most terrible things ever made so their over-the-top application of uh you know a murder at the speedway and you know we're gonna go find out uh who did it it's it's a one hour long who done it around racing yeah oh my gosh it was so and, bad. I, I, and I have remembered the other one by the way it's actually the title scene and it's also i think features in the pilot for i don't know if this came stateside the persuaders no so this was oddly enough this was tony curtis and roger moore um who played a pair of uh, well, rich crime fighters, basically. And the, the backstory was that, uh, that uh, Roger Moore's character, um, Lord Brett Sinclair, was a failed race driver. And I think uh, there, were, uh, there were Formula One scenes involved in that. And this would have been very, very early 70s, late 60s uh, time. But uh, the Persuaders, if you, can, you can look that up on YouTube with the title sequence. There was a little bit of that former one footage in there, but I seem to recall the pilot for that did in, did include some race footage from period. Wow. There you go. Well, we have one final category. You get to is choose it, it even though you have no option. It's got to be hair general, hasn't it? It is. It is. Well, Are you want to fire a couple here? Sure. Uh, I'm going to try this one for you. It's a GT1 one, but let's get, chuck it your, your way. to see our listeners enjoyed that, DSA. There you go. Tim Same says, Hi, all. Second time for this question. Um, with the excellence of GT, uh, GT1 week content, what is the lesson from that era that needs to apply, be applied to t- today's sports car racing? Um, additionally, what's a car from 21 to 2011 that never got a GT1 version that ought to have and why is the correct answer the Porsche 997 GTC? Not another Porsche. What do you reckon? What what have we what should we have learned, or indeed what might we have learned from the pluses and minuses of GT1 MP? Thing that jumps out the most for me about what worked and why it worked was there seemed to be a greater collaborative effort between manufacturers and gt1 rule creators and regulators there seem to be more joy in spirit of creativity and largesse with gt1 in the manufacturers who participated in it there was a general sense of we're doing something more grand than other categories. Hey, again, Rock. Uh, this is his normal daily routine of complaining for hours that he wants to be fed. Um, yeah. There is just something very different about this that I thought was a wonderful thing. It was the manufacturers going above and beyond and getting some really cool manufacturers. The uh, Maserati MC12 comes to mind. 
uh, Saline S7 and such. Uh, just cars where you go, whoa, all right, that is a crazy low-volume hypercar type vehicle, and the manufacturers of such want to come play and are allowed, and these are very extreme machines. We also happen to have some very amazing supercars, Aston Martins, Corvettes, and such, but we do have this kind of upper echelon of rare cars that just have the average automotive fan, their tongues just wagging. And that was what was special, and there seemed to be an embrace of that, of manufacturers wanting to come play because they were allowed, and the rulemakers and regulators wanting to facilitate that. This seems to have changed drastically, where we have the rulemakers now really truly dictating the spirit, the openness of this. And it's not as if we haven't had some pretty cool stuff of late with four GTs and yada, yada, yada. There have been some really, you know, adventurous things too, like the BMW M8, which doesn't fit, but hey, they're letting this big badass thing come in. I've enjoyed that, but we're still nowhere near the mindset or the execution of what we saw with GT1. So that's maybe it. It's more of a, a mindset and spirit where today it seems like the regulators are solely in control and you can't blame them altogether for what we have, Graham, because manufacturers wield an immense amount of power and influence and yet the desire to wield that and shape our top, top tier of GT racing into something that is a little more fun, extreme, and ambitious. I'm just not hearing about that coming forth like it once did. So one side's locking it down, the other side isn't pushing, and we have stuff that, while cool, just seems way too overregulated. Yeah, I know. What about a car that uh, in the 21st century that didn't make it? I mean, obviously, there was a rule change that counted out things like the Koenigsegg because they couldn't make the production numbers that were required. That was, in part, a bit of a knee-jerk from the rule makers to counter uh, low-volume cars like the Celine, for instance, um, against the, again, looking for, you know, buy-in from the major manufacturers. It does seem to me, MP, that all too often those kind of moves from rule makers just ends up with them losing entries. It does. Uh, I apologize because I'm forgetting the model, but if we're talking what wasn't there that maybe could have been Dodge, uh, would it have been a Challenger back then? Uh, Again, I I apologize if I'm forgetting the exact model, but I do know that Dodge made a pretty heavy push during the aughts with, uh, you know, high-power muscle ponyish car type stuff that while not as you know high tech or cool as a corvette wasn't too far removed i mean there could have been some serious efforts to bring in something there to really you know bring their name back uh, in a way that it once did you know back in the day um and i'm not necessarily just talking dodge viper i mean like back trans am era um i think there could have been something there would have both been high volume enough to gotten an entry, but also I think would have just really been a transformational thing for them. 
You've got every mobile device. We really do, don't we? We're just not winning today. It might be I'm Rocky calling you, asking you to tell me to feed him. Um, I'm just going to get the lady to answer that phone. Rocky, <laughs> shut up while we're at it. We're trying to record something, and we're not going to cut this out either. All there right. you go. Anyway, uh, uh, um, where... I, I just I just have this quick one about GT1. That was also an era, by the way, the latter era, where there was real spirit between the main protagonists. I will always remember the foot races pushing the Corvettes and the Aston yes. Martins, their place in the grid. I think we've lost a bit of that. We've lost a little bit of that. Uh, it does seem now that it, the spirit is not quite what it was, and I, I mourn that, I'm afraid. Things like, for instance... One of my favourite tales from Le Mans was George Howard Chapel, then the team uh, principal of Aston Martin Racing, and George hurt himself, I think, at the test day, um, which meant he had to leave his company, Aston Martin DBR9, um, in the car park, be taken home by somebody else to come back for race week. And by the time he'd come back, his company car had been thoroughly stickered up as a Corvette. I took photos of it and posted it. Yes, absolutely. I, Great stuff. Yeah. We missed a bit of that. Okay, what's next, then, please? We're going to go to Chris Alfby, who says, I know neither of you are fans of the eSports stuff that's gone on the last few months. wouldn't say that's accurate. It's, I don't lack fandom or interest in it, Chris. I just don't have a huge passion for it. So two different things there. It says, however, hashtag me personally, I think this has gone too far. In the end... They are still games to have fun with. The drivers have made it quite obvious in most series that they want to have fun, not be super serious. And therefore, I'm wondering how long you think this might go on for its current state of seemingly forced participation. Not really a question, more of a statement, but whatever this podcast, but whatever this podcast is makeshift as it is. Well, there we go. Shots fired as well. Thanks, Chris. Uh, also completely accurate as well. Um and Daniel Summerskill as well is, is, is going in the direction that uh, I'm sure this question was going in the first place. Uh, what are our thoughts on the apt Audi business? We should explain that for those people that have been hiding under a rock for the last week or two. Yeah. Uh, uh, hashtag B personally says Audi were justified in firing them as he was driving the Audi team in Formula E, blah, blah, blah. Um, can I hit the um, the Daniel Abtick into the stands for starters? Um He's a factory driver for Audi. Now, whether or not he was going to come forward, he says now, and admit to it as being a jolly shape, the reality is if you can do that, you know what? Clear it with your boss before you do it is the straight answer. If this was some kind of image-building fun and games to kind of thumb a nose at his opposition, I'm afraid I'm not buying that. Uh, what I'm actually getting from this one is that Daniel Apt wasn't particularly good at e-racing, and was trying to pull a fast one. If, if I'm wrong, well, you know what? I'm not the one sitting here with no job. The reality is he was a factory paid driver for a blue chip brand who have a clearly defined set of behaviors they expect from their employees, particularly those employees who's, who are there front and center to promote not just their brand, but the, the brand of the driver as well, if you like. And it just was not a very smart thing to do. Well, he, here's, this, was it? here's this, Graham. It, so I had long conversation with one of Daniel's mutual friends, uh, Connor Daly. And mm -hmm. he said he has been fighting nonstop uh, 
against everyone saying it's justified. This firing is justified. He says it's just ridiculous, right? Um, th- this is a, the dumbest thing ever. And I don't disagree with the stupidity of the whole scenario. Watch. Yeah. I actually spent the time to watch Daniel's 14-minute video. And in it, he said, and this is, again, this is taking a, a lot of, there's a lot of, of latitude being uh, employed here, that if you watch the previous race, e-race, I'm sorry, Formula E iRacing eSports event, he said jokingly, oh, I should get uh, someone else to drive for me, ha, 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 and went to say, oh, we'll see, that was me forecasting, and for- there's a bit of foretelling of what was going to come here, and then attempted in this video to say, oh, this is a part of some big master joke and plan, and see, this wasn't new, this wasn't uh, some sort of surprising thing that I did see on the la- on the broadcast of the last one, I actually kind of, you know, suggested something like this. Pardon my French here, but that's complete bullshit. If this is something that Daniel wanted to do, and he, again, said, oh, and yeah, and you know, I was going to unveil all this as a joke and then see, well, if you were planning to do something like this, that was just a big joke. And he's already said, "Look, I hate that. I'm not. I, I'm not that guy with esports and sim racing. I'm terrible at it. I don't like it. Yada yada yada." So I get that. Um, if this is some sort of big joke he was wanting to play, well, the way you do that is when you are getting ready to do the next race, you do film something. Hey, everybody. You might have heard on the last broadcast, I kind of jokingly said, oh, I, I, maybe I need to do the next one with a ringer or, or whatever he said exactly. And, okay, well, I'm actually going to do it. So the race is, you know, a half hour from now, and I've got my buddy here, whatever the guy's name was, who's going to pretend to be me, and we're going to put a little microphone kind of to obscure his face a little bit, and we'll see if anyone calls this out. But just here's, here's the breadcrumbs of me doing this as a full joke and right this is how you cover yourself i'm not saying that you don't get any blowback but at least if you are trying to tell us oh no this is all a big joke that we had in motion i tipped my hand a little bit in the last one the last race and since here where i'm actually doing it here you go and so ha 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 off we go with this race and then here's him off to the side during the race filming uh, the guy, you know, the ringer doing it and then pointing it back at himself going, see, it's not me. Ha ha. Yeah. And then you get all that ready to push out the minute the race is over. Hey, everybody. You might have heard last week. I said this. I, I, we actually did it. And I'm sorry. You know, I know some of you might have taken it the wrong way. But hey, just thought it was going to be totally fun because I'm so bad at this. The only way I could have done well was to have this ringer do it. So. Obviously, don't count any points that I earned and so on. But, hey, just wanted to highlight the fact, like, you know, don't take this stuff too seriously. That's what he intimated was the real cause and the motivation and everything. And yet he did none of that to demonstrate any of that. So, again, I totally agree that this is way massive overreaction. The guy doesn't deserve to lose his job. I agree with all those things. Um, I don't believe him when he says this was just all 
uh, organized and pre-planned. Here's yeah. the reason Daniel App no longer has a job. And I'll just read, and I, this is an article that will go up on Road and Track in the coming days here. Because um, it's just easier to read. This is the reason why he no longer has a job. We can only assume the latest real racing driver to lose his job uh, through. I'm sorry. Jeez, I need to edit my own work here. Um, we can only assume the latest real racing driver to lose his job. The German factory Audi Formula E pilot Daniel Apt has poor short-term memory. It was the four-ring brand who revolutionized the use of diesel engines in motor racing from 2006 to 2016 at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, but withdrew from the sport amid the biggest auto scandal of the century as Audi's sister brand Volkswagen sparked a global furor over Dieselgate. For almost 10 years, VW's range of diesel-powered cars, it was found, were manipulated via software to cheat their way past diesel emission testing. Disgraced after being caught in its attempt to deceive, the Volkswagen Audi Group has paid more than $30 billion in fines, automotive buybacks, and corrective measures. This might just make a factory driver especially one being paid to race for a brand whose most famous racing exploits were terminated in the wake of a cheating scheme to think twice about concocting a scheme of his own involving cheating and deceit during an esports event while representing Audi in Formula E's iRacing Championship. For those who aren't sure why Audi reacted with such speed to suspend and then fire apt, here's your answer. So... As I said to my pal, Connor Daly, I don't disagree with you that the outcome here is way over the top. You could not, though, have chosen a worse manufacturer to represent with their name, their logo on your shirt and your hat, even if it's the ringer guy. There's one manufacturer Again, it's the Volkswagen Audi group, but there's one brand of all where you can't pull a cheating scandal, dude, as a joke. Are you kidding me? Are you that this is that's the part that's so frustrating. Yep. Are you yep. that dumb? How oh, the folks are going to love this one. Yeah, I know I represent Audi. Has there been any kind of scandal in recent years about cheating and deceit? No, not at all, man. Go for it. What? Are you surprised? I mean, that's the thing. You can only imagine the heads. All the folks atop the uh, good old Vag group are, are just going, What? <laughs> you did what? This is the one thing we're trying to bury and and move away from that we're cheaters and that we lie and and deceive. And so what do you think is the funny haha joke to do? Even in a stupid non-real thing, again, something that's get what? Uh, you could not have picked at a bigger scab. That's the part that blows me away, Graham. Staggering, isn't it? It's, you know, I'm sorry for the lad, but... Me was, too! But the mistake here was not the what he did in an eSports thing with a ringer. It was just failing to read the room and go, oh, yeah, that is who I work for. 
Oh, yeah. That that happened just a little while ago, didn't yep. it? Oh. Uh yeah. Maybe that's the wrong uh, doesn't sound doesn't sound doesn't sound to me like Daniel Andrews is gonna be on their pub quiz team anytime soon. That does not show a lot of smarts, does it really? <sighs> okay. Uh who's next up? Next up is Javier Samayoa, uh which is another name I I know that I've never read out before, so welcome, welcome. Why does the FIA exist? Marshall, he's asking you. Ooh. Can you explain why the Clouds Over Racing organizations, what their involvement is, honestly doesn't understand their existence? In the podcast, you've mentioned how uselessly bureaucratic the FIA is multiple times, especially with the convergence of intra and ACO, wondering how they might impact the agreement between the organizers, how they develop and implement the said convergence. Um, I'll say first thing first, uh, by the way, I think actually... Um, our friends at IMSA, our friends at the ACO have handled the FIA on this front with aplomb. Uh, but I'll leave the rest of it to you, MP. Javier, the FIA does many good things. Truly do. Uh, their road safety initiatives, their attempts, sometimes ham-fisted, but their attempts to promote and grow the presence of women in the sport. Uh, there's a lot of very positive things that they do with the money that they take in where we tend to ask ourselves, why do you exist? Why are you here? Is often more on the racing oversight and regulation side. And this is not too different, I would say, from any major international organization that attempts to set policy for all nations in something. Uh, whether it is NATO, World Health Organization, etc., there are those who say, okay, great, there are some things that you could help with because you're trying to do them from a global standpoint, but there's also many things that on a local, regional level, you just aren't needed, aren't required, and therefore we don't need your heavy-handed approach. And so that's honestly, Javier, where we get a lot of the frustration that you hear from racing series. And you also have some like, you know, uh, IndyCar, NASCAR. Um, <laughs> do you think they, either of those organizations uh, allows the FIA to dictate policy to them? They do not. So... In, and there are other international series uh, who have also said, no, we are our own selves. We have our own sanctioning body. We, set, we dictate our own everything. The only times that things can get a little bit funny is where FIA has oversight on racing circuits, in some racing circuits. So the FIA might designate a racing circuit, class this, class that. But that's, in some instances, them just simply adding their own, uh, I guess, whatever type of oversight that they want to without the track owner or the racing series that might own it uh, actually saying, yes, and we are going to abide by your rules. So it, it's just a weird, a bit of a weird thing, Javier, where the FIA does need to exist if we're talking many of the initiatives that they do that we would say are positive without the FIA and the money they take in globally many of these positive things would not be possible. To Graham's point, the FIA was, I might even continue to say still is, the least valuable, most problematic 
member of the three-way convergence process, which is why, as we've seen, the agreements stand between IMSA and the ACO. And the folks, the signatories on such things, uh, we're talking Jim France from the IMSA slash NASCAR side and Pierre Fion. You look at the photos from the convergence that you sat in at Daytona in January, Graham, and it is Gerard Nouveau, head of the FIWEC, standing, he's standing behind them in the photos as those two men were signing the agreements. So, yeah, I like what I've seen so far, Javier, in this regard, knowing that the one often troublesome or bad actor in this three-way relationship has been the FIA, and IMSA and the ACO have put them in their place. So I am glad we have an FIA, just not always on the true racing side. Would add this bit, by the way, I'm keen to find out, as the inevitable belt tightening process comes and hits, teams, series, race organizers, uh, tracks, I am keen to hear exactly what it is the FIA are going to do to contribute to that process, because it is certainly fair to say, you're quite right, some very valuable work goes on, including their oversight of things like safety, um, but there needs to be some recognition now that they, like everybody else, needs to cut their cloth a little differently, and I'm, I'm keen to hear what they're going to do on that front. Let's take a couple more, throw this one at you from our pal Daniel Summers-Gill. Graham, do you think Andy Palmer's departure as CEO of Aston Martin will have any impact on the current GTE program? Knowing that Andy um, was indeed a champion of it. Uh, he's a massive champion of motorsports, um, you know, and firmly saw that as part of the business plan both at Nissan, where he was previously, and of course at Aston Martin. I don't think his departure otherwise it's going to impact on that. There are two other things that might, one of which is potentially the convergence in a couple of years' time, um, uh, programs for uh, the way in which uh, prototype racing is coming forward. Of course, Aston Martin have effectively cancelled their uh, prospective entry into that one with the Valkyrie hypercar going west. It may simply be that where they're currently racing won't be available to them unless they come forward with an MDH. The thing that will impact is the reason Andy's gone, and that is disastrous financial performance of Aston Martin uh, since they had their public share offering. Um, It's just gone very, very badly wrong, and something really has gone wrong at the core of that business. Uh, I'm afraid, uh, I'm a big fan of Andy Palmer, but there's no way you can ignore what happened to the share price of Aston Martin. Uh, Of course, the COVID-19 processes impacted heavily on that again, but a lot of that damage was already there, and someone, I'm afraid, had to take the fall for that. And this time, the axe has fallen on Andy Palmer. Uh, what do I think about the prospects of GTE moving forward? It's going to depend on exactly what the funding basis for that uh, actually is. And the real, real uh, world answer is, I don't know. I don't know how much of that uh, was down to the sponsorship that the cars actually carried. I don't know how much of that was down to the ownership of the cars and the investment of the car owners. Uh, and I don't know how much of that was down to investment by the core business. I think the answer is we're about to find out. Let's go to one or two more as we've obviously gone into a bit of overtime here. 
Uh, Alex Eichmiller, question for MP. Really great article you yeah. had on the impact of photographers and independent media due to the COVID restrictions. Do you see that continuing after the restrictions are relaxed? Thinking about Road America where IndyCar and IMSA will have fans at the race. Will the series try to limit the media? Uh, so, interest. thank you for the kind comment there, Alex. Excellent article, by the way. If people haven't read it on racer.com, you should. So, need to clarify things. Just one comment here. You mentioned uh, about the impact of photographers and independent media due to COVID restrictions. There are no COVID restrictions limiting independent photographers or independent media. There are choices by racing series to restrict not something where there is any kind of federal or local policy saying we will allow a major sporting event, but only X number of media are allowed, only X number of photographers. There are no, to be clear, no requirements whatsoever limiting the folks in question here. What has happened is, in the case of IndyCar, at their upcoming race at Texas, and what NASCAR has been doing for a couple of weeks now since they returned to racing, is they are implementing their own limitations. And for what they've done, they have said, we will only allow our full-time photographic employees and large agencies that we have business contracts with. So this has stripped all the folks who shoot for, in the case of IndyCar, the independent organizations, the small business owners who shoot for Chevrolet, who shoot for Honda, who shoot for Chip Ganassi Racing, who shoot for Run On Down the List, uh, teams, drivers. Here's something that isn't very well known. And I, again, I know this is our sports car show, but we haven't had WEC or IMSA or whatever get back to racing. So all I can use is the examples of the series that are reigning IndyCar champion Joseph Newgarden has invested in a media company that is led by his kind of personal media manager uh, and such. So this is a direct business relationship. They employ multiple photographers slash videographers, right? So you might say, well, one, the, there's one driver who has, you know, multiple people. They're photographing just him. Actually, no. Through this little agency, they do some photos and videos for others as well. So it's not just Joseph. It's some of his rivals, actually, who have hired this service, independently owned. By coincidence, Graham, owned by the reigning champion. They're not allowed in. The reigning champ, who is, again, trying to do be more than just a driver who earns income from driving, is trying to diversify himself, has put some money in and invested into a small motor racing media organization that is extremely good. Photographers there are genuinely amazing. The video content they produce, amazing. Banned banned from attending and this applies to a number of others as well all because 
they are saying, well, there's a limited number of people overall that we want to have here. So I realize that I'm rehashing a little bit of the article, but I just wanted to, to point this stuff out before answering the major question. There are, I believe the number is something like 648 people total that will be allowed at the Texas IndyCar race. They have allowed two major photo agencies, AP and Getty, of which they have contracts with, and two photographic employees of, actually not the series, of IMS to attend. Everyone else has been stripped, no longer allowed, uh, or yeah, not allowed. If I had to guess, Graham, we're talking about eight people. So of the AP and Getty plus the two others that are that are allowed that have direct business relationships with the series, I'm not sure what that final number will be, but it's probably five to seven. Mm-hmm. Well, what are we talking about here? Those that have been uh, driven out, roughly the same numbers, five to seven others, independents. So... This group of five to seven, green light, you're good. This group that don't have direct business relationships, sorry, you're out of here. It's ridiculous. And so, you, again, you might default, because I've read a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, I've read a handful of responses to the article that were critical or negative, saying, well, this, what else could they do? They're having to comply to regulations. No, they're making up their own. Also, oh, well, you know, the... the amount of people you have to keep it as small as possible got it can't argue with that part if you were to show me graham the list of 648 people who've been approved for credentials i can guarantee you i will find the five to seven who are non-essential yeah girlfriends boyfriends husbands wives hangers on Fathers, mothers, I can guarantee you I will find the five to seven of folks who will be attending that race with no work whatsoever to do that are effectively the equivalent of human comfort animals, emotional support humans. That's all they are. I can find that number. Yank them off the list and say, so these folks over here that are truly essential because this is how they feed themselves, put their kids through school, pay their electric bills, and so on and so forth. These I can find. I can guarantee you I can find the non-essentials, the emotional support humans, yank them off the list, and award the credentials to those who genuinely have to be at the track to do their job to earn their living. That's the frustrating part. So coming back to Alex's primary question, thinking about Road America, where IMSA will have race fans, will they try and limit media? Yes. Been told that looking at at least Texas IndyCar, uh, they're going to allow, I believe, four reporters total. I was invited to be one of them. I declined because I don't need to be there. I am non-essential in terms of being on site for this one-day event. Um There's no need for me to travel to Texas to then sit in a media thing above in the grandstands above the main grandstands all day long, unable to go to pit lane, unable to go to the garages, unable to interact with anybody other than the four people in the room. Why the hell would I get on a plane, spend the money to do that when I can do this at home? 
can watch the same thing at home. So I said, no, thank you for the invite, but no, I don't have to be there to do my job. Um, let's think about those who do. So I can't tell you what the number might be for Road America IMSA or IndyCar, Alex, but unless we start to have more permissions like the one I mentioned earlier in the show about Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, saying you can have up to 25% maximum capacity. If that is something that Road America does and does allow fans in for IMSA, for IndyCar, for whatever else, and name some of the other tracks as well, it would be very hard to then say, but we're still not going to allow those independent photographers in. So we'll see where this ends up. I think we're going to see different rules, by the way, for different series. I'm hearing that already. I'm hearing of not dissimilar controls that will apply at some European series and some quiet reassurance that won't apply at others. Just need common sense. And I think the other thing that needs to be taken into account here is this is <sighs> shit or bust for very many small businesses right now. Bear in mind that there has been literally zero income for very many of those businesses, I have to say, including my own, for, what, three months now. And uh, it is not a comfortable place to be uh, just at the moment. We're okay. We're pushing on through, but that's going to require uh, the commercial marketplace at the end of this to be both active and available. And that's not a given quite yet. So, yes, wise words, Mr. Pruitt. And I hope someone out there is actually listening because these are our, they may not always be our friends, but they're certainly our colleagues and very many of them are our friends. And I don't like to see people hurting like this. And yes, I'm afraid right now, right now is the time for series owners, track owners to take aside the, you're quite right, this business of what is essential, define essential. Essential is that your industry is functioning. Are the people who are coming in through the gate making a positive contribution to the industry, the efforts, the sustainability, the reach, all of those things, the commercial activity? If they're not, then they should be at the very bottom of that list and should be, if you like, um, in what might be termed the friend zone um, and maybe not required on voyage for this particular one. But for God's sake, do not look back in six months' time and wonder why that guy that was always there and did that awesome stuff, why is he not here at this race? He's not here at this race, numb nuts, because you didn't uh, put him on the list and he's gone out of business. Um, so please, let's have some common sense when we're making those decisions moving forward. Let me throw one other. Let me throw one. Well, this might close it for all I know, but there's one other thing to add. And I've heard about this from some impeccable sources after I posted or after I filed that little opinion piece. I've been told there is a effort afoot on the IndyCar side, at least that is based on greed which has led to the scenario we are in one where the series holding a contract with a major photo agency wants to drive out all the independent photographers and therefore force the manufacturers and teams and sponsors all to pay them to receive photos and pay them photo licensing fees. So this 
as I have been told in this again, I've heard this, uh, this information is not coming out of the blue. It's actually again, this is not conspiracy theory. This is actually someone who knows truly knows has said, no, this is actually intentional. This isn't COVID related. This is using COVID-19 as the blanket, uh, event to implement the thing they've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, crazy to me to think that a racing series would think that photo licensing and dry, like truly killing American business owners, small business owners, um, putting them out of business so they can be the one and only entity in control of those that take photos and distribute photos and force all the folks, all the teams, all the everything to have to pay them to get those images. Um, that sickens me. It truly sickens me. And not as if crazy greed, Graham, is ever a really good thing, but if you're going to ruin people's lives for a cash grab, at least make it meaningful. <laughs> Right. If we do this, yeah, going to be a lot of human wreckage, but we are going to be swimming in thousand dollar bills. Oh, my. I mean, it's unfathomable not, how much money we're going to generate. This yeah, isn't it. <laughs> this isn't it. Photo rights. That's the that's where you transform people's lives uh, financially. You know, I. Yeah. I know there's ruined lives, but hey, look, geez, we're now making zillions. At least you go, it's still sick, but at least I can understand where your greed is rooted. Uh, this one makes no sense because well, there's just not that much money to get. But here's the other part of that is that they should realize, and if they don't, here's the news, guys. If that's the game, there are going to be fewer places where those photos are going to be seen because some of that independent media will be going down with that same sinking ship. You know, this is a terrible time to be involved in, you know, entertainment, sport, leisure. Terrible, terrible time, you know, where we've got this unparalleled audience, but no one's paying for it. So it's, you know, it, right now, this is the time where you need to be reaching out and, put, and pulling these people closer, not the other way around. By all means, Take it as an opportunity to take a look back at basically who you are giving effectively free access to your events and make the decision based on the value that they're providing. But let's be blunt here, guys. Um, we know who in that press room is providing a valuable service, uh, whether or not it to be to a client set or to the series or to a wider world. And we know the ones that aren't. And we're not talking here about those sorts of people. We're talking here about the names that some of you out there listening to the show will be familiar with because they're the guys whose awesome photographs you see and comments on on the Internet, on chat rooms, um, on comments at the bottom of uh, the, the legitimate news outlets every other weekend. These are the guys that, trust me, that is a very hard gig to earn a living with lots of people who'd like to think they can do it. Trust me, 99.9% of you can't. What do you say, brother? We're well over the one hour we thought we were going to do. We're at almost an hour 40 right now. Uh, should well, we say farewell? I, I think we should say farewell. Um, 
What can I say uh, as we record this on Sunday evening? Can I just say this to all of my friends, including yourself, United States? It's a tough time to be an American right now. Please take care of yourselves. Um, we're watching. We're listening. We're grieving with you. It's a terrible time. Um, but let's see some sensible decisions made going forward, not just to do with what's going on outside your doors and windows in the major cities of the USA, but also in motorsport as we move towards uh, a return to racing. Let's hope for happier times ahead. Why don't you take us the rest of the way home, my friend? Well, we're going to say thank you. We're going to say thank you to Cooper Tires and to the Justice Brothers, to Bill Helmets. USA and to Toronto Motorsports. I'm going to say thank you particularly to you, Marshall Pruitt, for your continued support here. I know we've got a big week or two coming up on Marshall Pruitt Podcast, a week in sports cars and inside the sports car paddock, which we hope is going to make a return uh, in the next few days. Uh, I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the week in sports cars. We'll see you next week.